Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We are fortunate today. With us is Professor Roger Martin. Uh, he and I met at the Thinkers 50 Forum uh, in person. We were trying to figure that out uh, in person uh, last year. And uh, he's a writer, a strategy advisor. And in 2017, and this is a lot of responsibility and weight on his shoulders, he was named the number one management <laughs> thinker in the world. So, you know, it's 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 both a blessing, but also probably something to live up to. But you'll hear why uh, in, in our conversation today. He's the former dean and institute director of the Ma Martin Prosperity Institute at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto in Canada. And he has written uh, most recently a terrific book called When More is Not Better, uh, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Roger, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me on, and it's great to see you again. It's nice to see you too. So, let's just ground ourselves in 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 a couple of uh, foundational ideas um, of the book. First, what's the problem that has driven you to write this book? The problem is the stagnation of the middle class in America. So, the median income has been too flat for too long, and the nice American combination of democracy and capitalism only works, I believe, when the median family is moving forward. Because to get this lovely combination of democracy and capitalism, you need to have 51% or more of the populace saying, I support this system. And I'm fearful that if the median families and families around there no longer feels like it's working for them, they won't support the system anymore. And, and that was the inspiration for the study that I, uh, that I started in 2013 that uh, resulted in the book. Okay, so I want to talk about the study in a second, but let's talk about some terms. What is democratic capitalism? It would be the combination of democratically elected governments pursuing an economic strategy that involves mainly the private ownership of productive uh, assets, regulated, uh, of, of course, uh, as opposed to the state ownership of, of uh, assets and state central planning. So it would be that combination of, uh, of two things. And, and I think it's been the most successful form of, of management of, of economies and one that I, I happen to love. I can't remember who said, but capitalism is the worst uh, system except for all the others. And that was Winston Churchill. That was Winston Churchill. It sounded <laughs> like Winston Churchill. Right? It, it, it does, doesn't it? He, he said, he said some, uh, some wonderful things, including America always gets it right, but only after exhausting all other alternatives. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's great. Um, tell us about the Martin Prosperity Project. Sure. So when I stepped down as dean, I was dean of the Rotman School, as you mentioned, for 15 years from 1998 to 2013. I uh, went to take over something called the Martin Prosperity Institute, which the wonderful 
a benefactor of the, uh, the Rotman School, Joe Rotman, uh, gave to, to honor me. He said, go and do whatever you want. Uh, and so I, I went to the Martin Prosperity Institute and started in 2013 a project on the future of democratic capitalism. Because in 2013, I was, I was having these concerns about the stagnation of, of uh, middle incomes in America and the explosion of incomes of the top uh, 1%. I just said, that's, that's not good. That's not how uh, I think we wanted that to work. And let me ask you a question. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, yeah. I don't want to distract us from the project, but I do have a question yeah. when you say that. Would you have been as disturbed if the middle class continued as it was, right, but the top 1% wasn't earning so much? That would have been, well, depends what you mean by the middle class doing what it was. It, I, uh, I think it's just super problematic not to have the, the uh, middle income uh, families uh, growing, so benefiting from, from that. But it just exacerbates it, uh, the problem when, when there is real economic growth but it is going disproportionately. The fruits of it are going disproportionately to the, the top 1%. Right. Does that, that contrast dramatically to what happened in the Great Depression? In the Great Depression, it was a you know, terrible situation where we had a decline in, in, uh, uh, in incomes per, per person of like 33% over a four-year period. Just terrible, terrible uh, downturn. But in that period, the top 1% actually fell more than the median family, right? So at least Americans could say, man, <laughs> this sucks, but at least we're all in it together. So and that's, sure the, enough, that's the, that's they got I'm, out of it together. That's what I'm curious about. I'm curious whether yeah. this is a psychological issue or an economic issue. Because when I think of the psychology of sort of comparative incomes, and I think, you know, the, that, that research that says, and I'm sure I'm going to get the numbers not precisely right, but... I would r rather make, uh, you know, $100,000 knowing that you're making $50,000 than make $150,000 knowing that you're making $200,000. Meaning, I would rather make less money as long as I'm making more than you. And that's, I think, a psychological issue more than an economic issue. So I want to sort of parse out whether this distinction is psychological or economic. I think it's both. So, and I, first of all, I agree entirely uh, with you, right, that there's a huge psychological uh, component to it. I mean, in some sense, democracy is a big psychological thing. Yeah, I guess right? that's interesting. It's, that's you know, Right. You know, it's like I and, and my fellow citizens get to elect uh, who, who uh, uh, governs us. So I think that's partially a psychological Issue, but but I I, I do agree. I, I I think I think it's partially psychological. It's like we're working hard, and we're not moving ahead, and they are. And they are right. The fact that we're not moving ahead is economic, and the fact they are is psychological. I would I would uh, right. I would say. And right. so it it, it is uh, it's the interplay of those two, and the interplay I don't think produces a a very positive uh, a picture. Got it. In contrast to the Great Great Depression, I think there was a sort of a collective will to to overcome, to come out of it, and and uh, you know lots of political changes 
the New Deal, everything in order to, in order to get out of the the mess that uh, uh, America was in and and the rest of the world, but America uh, to a great extent. Right. Okay. So thank you. Uh, let's continue with like what the research was of the Martin Prosperity Project. Well, I just wanted to understand what was the future of democratic capitalism. Were were we destined to have this continuation of of flat, very flat median incomes and everything going to the top one percent? What had changed uh, in the economy? Had something fundamentally changed? I did not know at the time whether something had fundamentally changed, so we could just expect more of this. Was this a blip? Uh, why was this happening? And most importantly, because I'm a pragmatic man <laughs> what could you do about it if you didn't like it right and i and i like that so much of this book is devoted because a lot of political books especially are devoted you know much more to to let me identify the problem than the solution you identify the problem in a thorough way but you spend the majority of the book on the solution which i like okay so you short long story short you discovered that there's actually a problem in the system yes yes i think there's a fundamental problem and that is that we have we have pushed the bounds of the a good concept. So efficiency, the pursuit of efficiency is a good thing. Uh, just like, you know, whatever, eating a chocolate mousse is a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but if you, if after dinner you had 25 chocolate mousses every, every night after you dinner. You have just described be- my challenge. <laughs> your challenge is that chocolate mousse. Well, I do too. Dark chocolate mousse. Um, so uh, more, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. Right. And what what I believe has happened is that we pursued efficiency to such an extreme and in and in flawed ways that we've created inadvertently an outcome that we never expected. Uh, so that that to me that is is the the fundamental uh, finding, which in 2013, I, I did not appreciate or understand. So now, that was that was new news to me. Did you originate this idea of efficiency and resilience? I don't know. Somebody else, somebody else may, may well have. Well, the reason I'm asking, I'll tell you the reason I'm, I'm not to put you on the spot. I'm sorry if it does, but I, that's not the reason I'm asking. The reason I'm asking is because the way I first became acquainted with it was Michael Pollan, an article that I read uh, by Michael Pollan, talking about our food system and the fact that, you know, it has become so efficient that during coronavirus, when 5% of the meat processing plant, you know, that when when one meat processing plant shuts down, that's 5% of our system, and that we've been overrun, you know, we've, we've focused too much on efficiency in our food supply and not enough in resilience in terms of local farms and things like that. And so then when I read your book, I was like, oh, that's where Michael got it from. And I love the idea. I found, you know, like the whole, that wasn't what the whole article was about, but that was the, the piece of the article that I, it was my big aha. And like this idea of efficiency versus resilience is so profound and so clear and so difficult to overcome, in my view. Like, yes. I, I think this is really hard. So that's just why I was asking. If it was, I wanted to thank you for coming up with the idea. But at least thank you for, like, <laughs> you know, thinking about the idea. Yes. I, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure. There are often many things I, I think about that, that I find out later. Uh, Someone else that, thought about, that too. Some, somebody else uh, uh, has as boat. well. 
though though since you like it i i will i will give credit you know to to a, a fellow named Chris, uh, cliff saunders so i was working in the mid 80s with a um a high-tech company and doing training uh on strategy with them and the guy who was managing the work there's a bright brit named cliff saunders uh whose father worked with touring back mm -hmm. he was british and he and, he, and his father worked uh, with the uh, touring, touring on computers way back in uh, uh, in during the uh, World War II, uh, and was part of the Bletchley Park uh, code breakers. So anyway, Cliff Cliff used to we just used to have dinner while we were, uh, uh, when we were doing these offsites, and and he he talked to me a lot about how systems when they are essentially running hot, how bad things happen that you just can't predict you don't know what bad thing will happen but when you take away all of the all of the slack in a system uh that something will happen and after the fact you'll say oh maybe we should have thought of that but cliff would always say no you couldn't because you just don't know that's the price of running systems hot and so often in my work there are things that that stay in my mind for 20 years, 30 years, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, then they sort of, they're in the background and they come to the foreground at some point. And I think all th those dinners with Cliff, when we talked about that, actually had an impact as when I started to see something, I said, well, Cliff talked about, talked about this, you know, 30 years ago, and he's right. a smart guy. It's great. <laughs> I really, I think it's so critical. And this idea that if you're running a system hot means that you've taken all the slack out of the system. And so it's as efficient as it possibly can be, which, you know, from, from our case, from a, an economy perspective, it means, you know, I can get organic greens at a cheaper price than I can get it otherwise. In fact, I'm often surprised when I go to a farm stand, and I'm just using food as an example because I've been thinking yes. about it in these terms. I go to a farm stand and I'm thinking, why does it, is it more expensive for me to go to a farm stand when they've cut out all these middle people than it is when I go even to Whole Foods you know, where they've, you know, got a big organization around it, but it's still more expensive. And the reason is because there's such an efficient major system. But then when E. coli bleeds from, you know, a, a cattle farm into the, into the green farm, and we realize that the farm that supplies those greens shows up in every single processing plant and then you have to shut down the whole food supply because while it's efficient and cheaper it's you know the, when the system runs hot if anything goes wrong then it kills the entire system I'm absolutely about this correctly you are you are and and that's and 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 people who study study this talk talk about you know tightly connected systems so one way to make uh, a system more efficient in that way is to more tightly connect the the pieces of it but once you've tightly connected it uh you get all sorts of uh you get all sorts of other problems so if you're interested in that topic there's there's these great guys uh, uh andres tilchik and chris clearfield have written a great book recently called meltdown uh that uh, that you might want to explore because it talks about the the you know the really terrible downsides of tightly coupled systems so one of the challenges that we're facing is we have been taught and driven, I mean, I know in my lifetime, certainly, to make everything more efficient, to, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, like you're I mean, on a, this is on a global economic scale, like you've got Amazon, right, which is, you know, a great example of a massive organization. I think there's some 
crazy number. I don't know what it is, but it's it's like 70% or 80% of all, maybe it's even more than that, of all internet purchases go through Amazon, of all online shopping goes through Amazon. So that's that's an example of a very, very efficient system with, in some ways, very low resilience unless they create resilience in their system. And 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 so like in the large corporate level, you have that which companies which are driven to expand and to grow year after year after year. It's involved, you know, it's, it's driven by shareholder uh, and analyst um, uh, uh, pressures and it's driven by our natural desire to like grow and get better. And then it's also in these little levels like, OK, here's the seven minute workout. You just need to exercise your body for seven minutes in exactly this way, and that's all. And then, you're, and and I, I, so I, so once I started seeing it through this lens, I see it everywhere. Like everything that we do is driven towards efficiency, and and again, like I think we're talking about what you we were saying beforehand, an economic problem as well as a psychological problem. How do we break? And we're going to talk about the economic piece in a second. How do we sure. break the psychological drive? Like that's a, how do we tell people, you know what? Better for you not to grow so big. Better for you to not be so efficient. Better for you to waste time. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of books about the Sabbath and, you know, take a day off, take, you know, uh, 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 take a month off from social media. Like how do we build that slack? Because the only thing I've seen in my lifetime is every single open minute in our day is taken up by something. I think it's not going to be easy. So I think you raise a really, a really good uh, question because we are habit-driven people. Uh, this is brain science has figured this out in the last 10 or 15 years, just how habit-driven we are. So we're, we have established all sorts of habits that have driven out slack out, out, of, our, out of our system. So I think it'll take a while uh, to break them entirely. But... I think just reflecting uh, on how it makes you feel, like how how does it make you feel when you have to race from one meeting to the next, or for for example, how does it how does it feel? I just had this back and forth with my EA who had booked me for a call like a call like this ending at time X, and another one with somebody else entirely starting at time X. Right. Uh, and, and, and I said, I will be terrible in the second call. You got to understand. Yes, they they asked you to start that at whatever it was, two, two o'clock when, when my other one ended at, at two o'clock. I know they asked and I know we want to be we want to be as, as uh, good with people as, as possible. But I will suck as long as uh, I get your first call. That's OK. That's okay. That's okay. That's, that's right. And so, so I, I, I just, I think people just have to have to reflect on, uh, on themselves. How, how does this really work for me? Because what I find is we, we get into this sort of theoretical mode that says that says basically, well, th- I could do that, um, but we don't get into our heads and say. No, 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 no. Practically, how will I experience that? And will I be uh, good at that? Just I don't like even sta- think we notice it, by the way. I think we notice it when we go to bed at night and go, oh, my God, I'm exhausted. But yes. I don't think we notice it in the time. I think we're running on some kind of a system. And there's even some probably joy that we get from being so efficient and going, wow, so pro- I got this call and I'm so productive. I've done this and I've done this. And so I don't think in the moment 
it's like, you know, running sprints in the moment. I don't realize how exhausted it makes me. But afterwards, maybe that's when I notice. And I think some of the psychological challenges specifically that we don't notice it when we're going from call to call as much. We just sort of notice this vague sense that we put on ourselves as not being strong enough or not being, you know, capable as everybody else of booking our days like that. And then we go to bed at night exhausted and wake up in the morning exhausted. And I also think if we spend a little more time uh, talking to our customers, it would make a difference. And in this, in, in this case, I'm using it sort of metaphorically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if, 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 you, if you talk to your life partner and said, well, you know, how did you experience that? And he or she says, <laughs> says to you, well, you look tired and distracted. Right. All right. That's helpful feedback or or if it's an actual, you know, uh, a customer. But but I, I think I think we just take it for granted that the efficiency is good and there are no downsides. And and it's a it's a matter of understanding both the, the pluses and the minuses, which yeah. is, again, why I say efficiency isn't bad. It's just too much of it is not, a, not good a good thing. Yeah. And I, I actually realized for myself, so I've been slowing down over the past couple of months very deliberately. Okay. And what I've noticed is I'm more playful. I'm funnier. I enjoy people more. So it's like these, like there's a way in which our single unit measurement, you know, like if we're just measuring how productive we are, which is like, really, it's like a very reductionist view of life, but we've sort of drawn ourselves to, to prioritize that over everything else, or many of us have, at that and many businesses have, at that point, we don't necessarily know what we've missed until we, you know, like an alcoholic doesn't, can't really figure out why they're drinking while they're drinking. Like yes. they have to yeah, stop yeah. drinking to see what else is there. And so I yeah. think that's true also because, to our like productaholic, productiveaholic, I'm going to make up a word, but you know, yes. Like we don't really realize the impact on us until we slow it down a little bit and see what else is there. Yes, and and you and you touched on on something really important. I just want to go back to Peter. You said measurement, uh, and that is a real key. The and reductionist. You said two things: measurement and reductionist, and those are very very critical pieces of it. It's it's not necessarily just efficiency. It's the way we start to measure efficiency. Right. And we measure it in highly reductionist ways. So, yes, you may say, oh, my reductionist way of measuring my efficiency this day was how many meetings did I jam in? Right. Right. That's a proxy because efficiency is, is sort of a, a very vague, esoteric kind of abstract word. And so you need to anchor it in something and say, OK, efficiency means number of meetings I had in the day and more is better. That's a very reductionist view uh, that's using a proxy number of meetings for efficiency. And that's one of the things that I found is that we're, we're doing that all over the place. So companies will, will say, well, being efficient in labor costs means having the lowest possible average uh, wage level. Is, is, is that really efficient if your workers aren't making a living wage and they're dragging themselves to work at a shift where they haven't had enough rest and they can barely get their job done. And if a customer, let's say it's a retailer, because that's where lots of low wages are, a customer comes and says, hey, could you help me? You're like, the, you know, no, I don't have any, any time. 
all of those things actually go into efficient labor costs, but they they are often ignored entirely. Right. And it's just a simple proxy. Did we minimize the number of labor hours on the store floor uh, because we had X number of guests and each guest should have, you know, you know, a tenth of a labor hour or, 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 or something, did our staffing algorithm get us close to that level? Is that really kind of efficient? Is that efficient in producing the best customer experience that gets more of them to come in and to buy more things because they can find more things because they got help to find the things they, they wanted? Those are all part of a more complicated uh, and sophisticated view of, of, of efficiency. So, so this is so part you, you put your finger on something very important. Thank you. And and your and 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 the conversation that you're having is part of, or or conscious capitalism might be part of this conversation, but it's part of this larger conversation of, you know, who are our stakeholders? Like, are are your stakeholders just your shareholders, which is what sort of you know typical capitalism assumes in some ways. Or, you know, it kind of goes to the owner, or is it your customers and your employees and the environment? And like when you and you talk about a system out of balance. So, you know, when you prioritize just one stakeholder, then the system gets out of balance. But if you sort of have this broader view of who your stakeholders are as leaders of businesses, you could you, it, it, it becomes psychologically easier to make decisions that might might deprioritize one in order to balance out the others. Absolutely. And I think an important thing to understand, too, is, is if you look at the history of, of that, that broader view of the stakeholders uh, has been around in American democratic capitalism for a hell of a long time. It's only been since 1976 <laughs> that we've had this, this, uh, this increasing belief that it's shareholder uh, value primacy. It actually started started with an article in 1976, a very influential article, and and so it's not. This is again, people who have a shorter term kind of view of things think that this has been around forever. It hasn't. Uh, in my view, it's a perversion of the system. Um, I I am a big fan of Robert Wood Johnson, right, the founder of Johnson and Johnson. He took Johnson and Johnson public in 1948 and had a credo that's that's engraved in granite in their headquarters and it says i'm paraphrasing a little uh customers which she called patients because they were made uh, healthcare. healthcare patients come first employees come second the uh, communities in which we work come third and last he didn't say fourth either he said and last come the shareholders however if we do a good job on the first three Shareholders will earn a fair return. Right. Now that's a company that's now worth about three hundred billion. I'm sure it was worth a half a billion or, or less when it went when it went public in 1948. So Robert Wood Johnson is right, right? Uh, and and I mean Aristotle's a favorite uh, philosopher of mine. Uh, Aristotle said way back when, you know, 2,500 years ago or 2,400 years ago, he he said. Uh, if a man, he was, they all talked about men at that time, if a man uh, sets out to be happy, he's unlikely to end up happy. If a man sets out to live a good life, by which he meant a life of servitude to, to his community, he will uh, probably end up happy. And I think the same about shareholder value. I think Robert Wood Johnson did his 
shareholders a huge favor, a huge, huge favor by telling his company, those people come last. You'd have thought he was disparaging them. He was saying terrible things about, about them. No, he was giving them the best deal they could get, which is they were thought about last so that all the employees worked on patients and employees and communities, and then good things happen uh, for the shareholders. So I, I, I believe that absolutely about, about uh, uh, business. So this whole notion that, well, if you think about stakeholders rather than shareholders, you won't have any discipline. And blah. So here's one of the challenges. The most powerful people in this country are not looking for resilience. And it's an essential problem that the most powerful companies are not really looking for resilience. And so we're asking people to do things that conceptually are in everybody's best interest. And, but certainly in the short term, and maybe even in the long term, not in their own individual interest. So what you've just said about Robert Wood Johnson is true, and there's a leap of faith to it that says, yes. if I deep, and by the way, there's also a sense of the most powerful people in this country and the most powerful companies in this country aren't looking for a fair return. They're looking for a more than fair return. They're looking for the best, the greatest return that they can possibly get. And, and so the question is like, and, and now I'm kind of moving to solutions, but how do we, like, what kind of solutions do we find when, when we're looking to other people who have to make decisions and those people, it's not necessarily in their individual interest. So there's a way in which saying when you have that much money, maybe you can take some more of those risks and say, we need to build resilience or, but I'm sort of curious to get your perspective yeah. on that. And I'm specifically, most people who listen to this podcast are business leaders and kind of yes. in business. So I want to sort of focus in that, in that arena. Sure. Well, I, I, I think in truth, um, they're imagining a false trade-off. So I'm actually not asking business leaders to sacrifice anything. I mean, I'd be, I'd be totally happy if they decided to, but <laughs> it is smarter. Right? This is back to Aristotle. Right? It, is, it is smarter. You're not going to end up with lots of shareholder value maximization if you attempt to maximize shareholder value. You think you are, right? But you won't have motivated your customers. You won't have motivated your employees, and you will be aiming for something that you cannot directly do. Shareholder value is a thing that happens down the line after other things take place. So saying, "Oh, I want lots of shareholder value," does not make it uh, make it happen. So Robert Wood Johnson actually created one of the most valuable companies from a shareholder value standpoint on the face of the planet right. by not doing that. Similarly, on wages, Costco pays what any other retailer would say are ridiculous wages, right? At a, at a time when average retail wages are in the $13, $14 level, the minimum that anybody makes in the entire Costco $120 billion company is, is around $23 an hour. So it's not a little more. It's, you could say, insanely more. Right. But they're massively successful because people love to shop at Costco because it's such, such an appealing place where every, everybody who's working there is happy, will happy, happily uh, help you. 
And of course, they're 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 a club. They're a, a discount uh, uh, retailer trying to hit low uh, price points. Um, you know, similarly, like you know, what's the highest customer satisfaction uh, and employee satisfaction airline in America? You know, Southwest. Uh, and people say, yeah, Southwest. Southwest is a low-cost carrier because they're non-union and they pay their employees uh, uh, less. Completely false. Completely false. They are un as unionized as as all the other airlines, but they pay the highest wages. Oh, well, how on earth can you pay the highest wages, unionized highest wages, and be the low-cost uh, carrier? Well, it's because. You have happy employees who have the kind of flexibility to do the kinds of things that 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 uh, are, are needed, and they couldn't be happier. Uh, and the airline does uh, does great. So I, I'm I'm just I'm literally more asking uh, business executives to <laughs> to stop doing things that they've come to believe are productive when they just plain aren't. There's a bunch of of corporate myths there that say reductionism is a positive thing, splitting it up and saying, okay, you're in charge of operations and, and you're in charge of, uh, of customer service and you're in charge of marketing and you're in charge of human resources. You don't have to talk to one another, just optimize. Yeah. Be efficient. In my, in my executive coaching work, probably the number one thing that I do that triples a stock price is when I get the leadership team to think of themselves not in their individual leadership roles of particular ah, okay. functions, but as an executive team running the business. And when they're yeah. able to make those trade-offs, that triples the stock price. Yeah. Well, so but there you hard. go, Peter. It's hard you're to making, do. You're, but you're it's making hard to, my argument. But I, no, yeah. I agree with you. And But it's hard to do <laughs> because well, they have to they, they have to let go of their belief. I think you're Yes. You, you've described it beautifully. Like they have to let go of their belief that yeah. if they make a trade-off in their particular function in order to support the the larger business, that that won't hurt them individually, but that they will continue to grow. And there is a leap of faith in that. Like they yes. they have to and they have to sort of shift their belief. You yeah, write, we need leadership for it. I mean, right. you're you're absolutely right. But, but as, as you say, uh, Peter, it is not a trade-off that we're asking them to make. Uh, right. uh, we're asking them to go to a, 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 just a better level that where everything is, everything is better. Right. You write, um, to achieve the overall balance, we need to pursue three individual balances. And this encapsulated things really beautifully. Yes. First, between the pursuit of pressure and the application of productive friction. I love that idea of productive friction. Second, you didn't write that part. I'm saying that part. Um, <laughs> second, between the desire for perfection and the drive for improvement. And third, between the march toward connectedness and the enforcement of separation. Can you briefly talk about each one of those three things? Because it feels sure. very central and important. Sure, sure. I, I, you know, thank you for pointing that out. I, uh, that that is central to the book. So, so efficiency tends to mean applying more and more pressure on on a, a system. Uh, but the more pressure you apply, the the you know, kind of less slack you have. And so, I say, friction is a good thing, right? So we put friction into various systems. We put governors on motors 
That's friction, so that they they don't go as fast. On in NASCAR, if you like if you like NASCAR, which which now that they've banned the Confederate flag, that that is a is a is a good thing. Uh, on the steeply banked tracks, right? They put restrictor plates on on the carburetor so that they can't go too fast, so they they, they that's, uh, the drivers' lives are are not lost. So it's just putting some friction into into uh, systems. Antitrust enforcement is friction, right? If you just have the pressure to merge and merge and get better and you let companies merge because they can be more efficient if they get rid of their, their, their competitors and have one supplying it, antitrust is friction, in my view, productive friction that makes sure there's competition so that the customers don't get lost. So that would be, that would be it. I'm not saying no pressure. I'm just saying balance it with, uh, with uh, friction. And one of the challenges to that, I think, is that we're facing people who are much more short-term focused as leaders, that leaders are often not trying to build a company for 100 years. They can build a company with excellent returns for 10 or 15 years, and then they move on to the next thing. So they've yes. created something really great. And there's so many examples. I even know very good leaders who have built amazing returns for some period of time and then they leave. And I don't know if it's because of the way they've built the returns or because of their focus, but then the returns plummet after that. And they leave and they go to the next thing and leaving any problems in the system for someone else to deal with. So arguably yeah. some of the leaders that we're talking about are long-term focused. Um, but also you look at some of the leaders like Jeff Bezos, who's long-term focused, but he's also building one of the, the biggest monopolies that exist. This is, this is another interesting topic. In fact, I've just written an, an article that's coming out next year on this. I, I think that we're seeing the, the coming end of the widely, tra widely held publicly traded company as the dominant form of economic organization, in part for exactly what you just put your finger on, uh, which, is, which is the structure of that just does not create the incentives that, that make the company or give the company the chance to be as valuable as it could be. I think we're going to see many more private companies. And I think we're going to see as a as the emerging dominant form, to give you a preview of the article, the emerging dominant form is the combination of ownership between a pension fund and an ESOP, an employee uh, stock ownership plan. Uh -huh. Because employees are, it's becoming more and more clear that having employees that feel a central part of the company is critical. And 50% of investors now in, in the U.S. Uh, capital markets, of U.S. investors in the U.S. capital markets are retirement investors. And so, so having a combination of, of vehicle rather than, rather than this short-term oriented uh, publicly traded structure is, is uh, what we need. Would that help to, sh I mean, the, the, we're living at a time right now when the disparity, not only between the rich and poor, but between what's happening in our economy and what's happening in the stock market is as like disconnected as I've ever seen it in my lifetime. And, Absolutely. And, I, and, and it's like, it's a little bit hard to understand. Um, yes. And, it, you know, except, except unless you understand it as a bubble. But, yeah. it's, but it's also this sort of like, you know, possibly the, the Pareto distribution that you talk about, which is, you know, 1% or a very, very small percentage of the people are investing in the stock market while everybody else is, is not, but, but, but subject more to the pain of, of the economic times that we're in. 
And at yeah. some point, there's a reckoning to that. Like at some yes. point, there's a reckoning. I, I agree. Now, a, a couple things. One is, I think I think those the views of individual ownership of of stock a little bit overstate the case, right? So, so the fact that people have their pension, their uh, uh, pension plans, and their four hundred one ks invested is helpful. ESOP is that on steroids, right? So, and it turns out, uh, as I've gotten to know the ESOP world a, a, a little bit, I'm no expert yet in it, but I've gotten ever more interested in it, that lots of owners who really, who've owned the company, private private company for a long time, they're 100% uh, owner or dominant owner, uh, and come to a point of their, you know, they need to pa you know, pass it on, uh, sell off to private equity, but if they kind of knew and understood, they'd be willing to sell to their employees into an ESOP, uh, and it just isn't as common uh, enough so that so that people don't think of it. But when presented with the with the opportunity, many of them say, "Wow, you mean I can I can share the wealth with my employees in this highly organized and and tax efficient way?" So so I think we're going to see more and more of uh, of of that as as employees, yeah, do say, you know. Yes, boss or owner, I like the fact that you've created this company that I work for, but I just, I just don't think that you should get 100% of the, of the, of the benefits of our, of our uh, labor. So I hope, I hope that Marx is right and wrong that wor workers will, to a greater extent, end up owning the means of production, uh, but not through violent revolution, but right. through uh, devices like, e like ESOPs and intelligent pension funds who will say, let's take that company uh, private. We'll own 50% of it, managing it for the long haul because pension fund obligations are 10, 20, 30, 40 uh, years out, and the other 50% owned by an ESOP, and and we'll just we'll just run it for for the benefit of long-term investors and the uh, and the employees as investors. In some ways, that's a um, that's connected to this idea of. Um, a, a march towards connectedness and the enforcement of separation that that you know it's like we're, the the workers and the owners shouldn't be separated like we're like, we're actually one one unit we have to find the places in which we're connected with things that we otherwise think we're separated from and act in the best interests of the whole and then that ends up producing for the whole See, you give better answers than I do. People. No, I'm just reflecting back <laughs> what I'm hearing from you. Um, Roger, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. There's so much more we could speak about it. We're already over the normal time that I do for these podcasts, but uh, it's just too much fun to speak to you. Roger Martin has written most recently the book, When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. I would argue that it's not just economic efficiency, but we've talked about a lot of different um, ways in which we prioritize uh, efficiency over other elements of what makes us rich uh, in, in the world, both as individuals and as organizations. Roger, it is such a tremendous pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you, Peter. This was a, such an enjoyable interview. I, I, mean, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, 
and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.